Yeah, this is uh, week three. Week three. The final week of our Pastor 411. I know, it's sad. People are like, final week. I know. I don't think uh, they're ready for us to be done yet. Well, I noticed earlier this week that some of the letters were falling off the boxes. I think we only got the three-week adhesive. Yeah, but we should get, we should, uh, I'm surprised nobody's (laughs) taken those letters. We could like rearrange those, you know, and make them something. I think we're going to probably have to save them because there's been a, pretty good interest in this series. So I think what we're going to do, we haven't, weren't able to cover all the questions that were submitted. So we're going to re- probably revisit this series uh, a few months down the road. We have a chance, so we'll hang on to some of the questions. If yours wasn't addressed, we uh, may visit that next time. And closer to the next time that we do this, we'll also solicit some more questions from you too. So we'll probably have to hang on to those boxes and, uh, and keep them for, for the future, I figure. Hey? Could we change the name to make it a different series? You know, I am kind of surprised that no... Uh, no, no mics or any kids came up here and, and reorganized the letters <laughs> on us. Because you could spell other things up there, I think. Yeah, really? Like maybe stop 411? Stop 411? Might that, yeah. stop texting. You know, you get of, that message on your phone when you want those annoying solicitors to leave you alone. At the end of week one, they could have been like, stop, stop, stop 411. Yeah. I saw the, uh, I was hungry the other morning and I noticed that it could spell oats. Ooh. Oats 411 as well. If you're not sure what to have for breakfast, you can text Oats to 411. Farmers as well. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. My favorite right now would be that it would be roast 411, which could mean several things. We could roast the pastor. Yep. It also makes (laughs) me think think of the new Instapot. (laughs) We could do that. Because there's a roast from there, you know? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Or or ports. Ports 411. Does that mean we're going on a trip? Going on a cruise. Travel agency. Yeah, not sure what to do in a port. Yeah. yeah. The, and then I also think tarps would be good. Tarps? Especially since, you know, there might be a men's event coming up this summer that, you know, is manly. We could do like a live stream or something from, hiking, from yeah. the tarps group or Tarp something. One. Yeah. The one that really jumped out for me, uh, Raptors. Raptors 4 and one uh, Raptors are playing at 4 o'clock today, if anyone's interested in the in the NBA, <laughs> so, yeah, the Toronto Raptors, 411. If you're curious how the score, you could text that to the score. Oh, there you go. Find out what's going on. So, yeah, lots of options there. So that's not necessarily an invitation to come reorganize them next time we bring them up here, but, <laughs> but uh, I'm kind of surprised it didn't happen so far. Uh, you know, we're, we should probably jump into our questions, though, hey, because yeah. we're going to lose time as more time as it is. Yeah, so. we could spend all day on this. But. Yeah, so we have a couple of really great questions for today that we're going to cover, uh, and then we'll start off a new series next week. Uh, next week, we're going to start looking at the book of Ephesians. Uh, we're going to walk through the book of Ephesians starting next week right up, until, uh, right up until summertime. So we can look forward to that starting next week. But for today, uh, Luke, why don't, you, why don't you kick off our questions here today with a bit of a kind of classic question, one that has come up uh, in different situations I've found myself in in the past. Uh, and there's probably some people here who are thinking this in addition to the person who sent it in. And so why don't you feel this one for us quickly to start off with. Sure. Paul says faith, James says works. Who's right? There we go. Who's are they in right? agreement or are they in disagreement? What's, what's happening in this? Maybe give us a background to the question sure. too. This question that common, often comes up is, are, is our salvation by faith alone or faith plus works? James and Paul, if you've read uh, any New Testament scriptures, uh, that you tend to see there might be a difference on this question. Um, so let's check out what they say and then uh, we'll see who's right, who's wrong. Uh, So for Paul, Romans 3.28 says, For we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from works of the law. And then James's rebuttal to that would be, uh, James 2.24, you see that a person is considered righteous by what they do and not 
by faith alone. So the question here is, who's right, who's wrong? Uh, Paul understands salvation and faith alone. He's very forceful in this in Ephesians. But James says, it seems like he's saying there's works. I got to go out and do some works in order to have that salvation with God. So the understanding here has to come out a little bit. James is emphasizing the point that genuine faith in Christ produces a changed life. Mm -hmm. So that means that once you accept Christ, you're actually going to go out and do good works. You're going to kind of even, I might even use the word compelled to do good works um, and go out and love and serve and all those things. And uh, what he's not saying is that you're not justified by faith, right? Or you are justified by faith, but you're not adding the works portion to it. So um, he really just wants you to understand that your salvation should be working out those good works as well. Uh, I read a story this week in Our Daily Bread, um, which I thought was interesting. So there was a guy named Roger. He lived in Illinois. It was very cold there in winters. We might respond to that. He ended up getting arthritis. And so his arthritis said, I'm done with this Illinois winter. So he moved to Thailand. And uh, the funny thing was, is as a believer, he didn't quite know what to do. And so a song he heard prompted him to say, you know what, I continue need to do good things and good works. You know, this is what God calls me to do. And so he took a half mile stretch of road where homeless people lived every day. And every morning he served food to 45 families who didn't have any. And then years later, a homeless woman came and talked to him and said, you know, I accepted Jesus as my Savior. And it was because of the love that you showed me of Jesus by feeding our families. So So for James, it's really that outworking of faith. Um, But Paul understands this too. Like, don't don't get wrong that Paul doesn't get this, because Paul does. He says the good fruit believers should have in their lives, which is in Galatians, right? That's our love, joy, peace, peace, peace. Patience, Patience. peace, you know, all those good things. Um, Paul informs us that we also created to do good works. So the answer is they are in agreement. James and Paul do not disagree in their teaching regarding salvation. They know you can't earn it. They know there are no amount of works you can do. Paul just simply emphasized that justification by faith alone, while James emphasized the fact that genuine faith produces good works. They would both agree that faith alone is what you have first and that salvation in Christ should then bring out those good works in you. Right. Good. Thanks for that. So, right. So when we enter into that relationship with God um, in faith, through Mm -hmm. his grace, there's this transfer. I like the word you use, compelled. And then we have Mm -hmm. this transformed person, this uh, reality that compels us to go forth. And as you also beautifully mentioned, that can have a huge impact upon people that we encounter. Yeah and that they can see God's love through those sorts of things too. Mm-hmm. Cool. Hopefully that answers whoever's question. Yeah. So. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's good. Uh, the next kind of, so we don't run out of time, um, the next one we're going to talk about, which is an interesting one, I think a lot of people kind of have this question that it goes around from time to mm-hmm. time, and uh, it's on the question says, what is the difference between tithes and offerings? Yes. This, this is a great question. I, I think this comes from even, I think even a few moments ago, I, I said these words as we give our tithes and offerings uh, as part of that 
offering that comes in each week that we refer to. Uh, and so there's two terms there. Are they synonymous? Are they different? Is one more relevant than the other? Which one should we be referring to? It's kind of the nature of this question. So it's, it's a great question for us to look at. To properly understand how to address this, I think we need to define these terms, though. We have to look at what are the definitions of these things to understand how they, how they relate or how they conflict or complement each other. So the first one we'll look at is, is the word tithe. Now, the word tithe comes from the Old Testament, where it literally simply means a tenth or, or 10% is what we can understand that to mean. And it's part of God's law that he gave to the people of Israel. It's part of the Mosaic law that was given to them where he requires all of Israel to give to the temple 10% of everything they grew, of everything they earned, uh, of everything that they kind of was placed into their hands. So, so if you were making clothes or if you were selling something in a market, 10% of the wages you earned, you needed to give to the temple. If you were a farmer raising grain, 10% needed to go to the temple. If you were raising flocks, again, 10% went into the temple. And we see this in, in Leviticus chapter 27 where it says a tithe of everything from the land where the grain from the soil or fruit from the trees belongs to the Lord. Now, why, why would God command this? Well, on the surface level, one of the most obvious understandings is to support the priesthood and to fund the ministries that were taking place through the temple. Now, that's very true. That is part of the reason that God commanded this to take place. But it's not the most important reason, nor is it primarily why I think God made this step and this command to his people. You see, in addition to this, first and foremost is it's an act of worship that he was commanding his people to engage in. So they're not actually giving to the temple per se. The temple is the location where they were bringing that 10% to, but, but what they're actually doing is giving to the Lord. They, they were giving to God. And as they brought in this 10%, they were declaring to him that all that they have, all that had been placed into their hands was from him. And as an expression of thanksgiving, they were giving back a portion as he had commanded. And also doing that, they were symbolically declaring that he was number one in their lives as opposed to whatever that thing, that material possession, money, grain, livestock, whatever it was, that he was number one, not what he had placed into their hands. Now, it's also an act of faith that's taking place because not only did God tell them to bring in 10%, but he also told them to bring in the first fruits. Now, the first fruits means that the first dollar, the first bit of grain you harvest, the first lamb that is born, that, that first bit that you get is what you're supposed to bring into them. So the minute it hits your hand, you look at that and the first of it is to be given to God as an act of faith and as an act of worship, trusting that just as he provided that first one for you, that you were going to give that to him, trusting that there is more yet to come because he was the provider of all good things that we needed to live on. Now, the alternative to this would be where we wait until we've taken the full harvest in or until all the lambs are born, and then we, we do a bit of a budget, and we go, okay, well, I need this much for here, this much for here, this much for here, and I have this much left over, so I'll give God a portion of that because if I give him too much, then I can't go splurge on myself. That would be sort of the opposite of, of the first fruits tithing that was that was being commanded. So that's sort of the basis of the Old Testament understanding of a tithe, bringing in the tenth, the first portion, the first and the best, the 10% to be given to, to God through the temple. Um, but what about the New Testament? Well, nowhere in the New Testament actually do we find in Jesus' teachings or in any of his followers, any of the writings, nowhere do we find a command or even a recommendation to follow this legalistic tithing system. So you might be thinking, fantastic, I'm off the hook. We don't need to do this. But... Um, it's not quite the way it works because Jesus did actually have some teachings on this, as did Paul have some teachings on what, what that should look like in the New Covenant understanding. 
For example, in 1 Corinthians, the, letter, the first letter that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth in chapter 16, he says this to them. He says, now about the collection of the Lord's people. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income. Now, here we see the institution of that weekly offering that is practiced throughout time, even up until, until this morning here at the church, the institution of the weekly offering, where each person, each follower of Jesus Christ is told to take an amount of money proportionate to their income and to bring that and to offer it into the church. Now, some people have chosen to follow the 10% still, which, which is fine. There's, there's nothing wrong with doing the 10% thing still if you want to follow that. But if you look at the other teachings we find in the New Testament, Jesus actually doesn't specifically mention 10%. And in a way, he actually kind of raises the stakes a little bit on how much that should be, that proportionate amount of our income. For example, remember in, in Mark chapter 12, when Jesus is at the Temple Mount and he sees the Pharisees coming and the Pharisees were giving their 10%. They were doing their, their legal obligation. They were giving their compulsory amount to the Temple, that 10% of what they had. But it really probably didn't mean that much to them because these guys had a lot. And 10% was what they were required to do, but they probably didn't notice it or feel it too much. And then along comes a poor widow who literally has two pennies to rub together and she drops those two pennies into the offering and Jesus praises her for giving all that she had. And we start to see this movement where the stakes get raised from sort of a set percentage amount to this idea of sacrificial giving. And Jesus speaks even a little more about this when he introduces the idea of an attitude of gratitude as we give as well, when he talks about how the measure that we use, we measure it back to us, introducing this, this sacrificial faith-based giving principle, which for some people... 10% qualifies as sacrificial faith-based giving, but there are some people where that doesn't even scratch the surface of how richly God has blessed them. And there's this higher calling that they may want to consider that they need to, to fall and live up to. We also see in the New Testament that this is lived out following Jesus' death and resurrection. For example, in, in Acts chapter 2, where we're told that, that the church sold all their possessions and they gave to those who had need. Paul teaches later on that if you sow sparingly, you will reap sparingly. And he also taught later on that it was more blessed to give than it is to receive. And, and he really jumps on this idea of sacrificial giving as much as we can when he talks in Romans about how we should actually present our entire lives, like our whole bodies, as an offering before the Lord. And, and to ensure that we do this with the right heart, to keep forward this attitude of gratitude that Jesus was speaking of, he also tells us in his letters that we are not to do this out of compulsion. We're not to do it reluctantly. We are to come here and we are to give faith-based sacrificial giving with a smile on our face. Why? Because God loves a cheerful giver which is a hard thing to do. Let's just, let's just admit, that's, that's not an easy thing to do, but this is the teachings that we find in the New Testament when it comes to uh, what, what an offering is. So, so technically, tithes are that Old Testament requirement under the law to bring in 10%, the, the first portion, 10% of everything that God has given to you. In the New Testament, we see this idea of offerings, which is a proportional giving that all followers of Jesus, of Jesus Christ are to bring in. So there are some differences between the two, but there are some very key principles that they share in common. And those principles are that in each case, it is an act of worship. Whether we're following, looking at the, the tithing or the offering side, in both cases, it's an act of worship where we are doing this as an expression of thanksgiving back to God. It's an act of faith where we are trusting him with the first and the best, acknowledging that he will provide the rest that we need. 
And then finally, it is indeed an act of support. There's a need to support the ministries and the workers that God has put in place in the local church. And in addition to that, when, when you participate and tithe not just resources, but your time, your talents, your efforts, your energies, your blessings, your giftings, and yes, your resources, it's also a way that you are part of something that's going on in the greater body that's here as well. So there's a bit of a, a connection taking place too. So that's technically the differences between those two things, between tithing and offering. But the way that they get used in the church practically is a little bit different too. And so when people talk, for example, about tithing in the church today, they're not specifically necessarily referring back to this this 10% Old Testament regulation. Quite often what they're meaning is that we should be practicing a regular systematic proportional giving to the church, that that it kind of feels and looks like that legalistic idea that exists in the law, but it's a little bit different. But it is a systematic, regular, proportionate giving that goes into the church. Now, you may do that by coming to church weekly and writing a check and dropping it on the offering plate. You may do it online. You may do it through pre-authorized debit out of your account, whatever it is. Whatever that regular support is that a person gives would, would sort of be that understanding of the, of the tithe. Now, when people use the word offering what is basically meant there in, in today's church world is a contribution above and beyond the tithe. The tithe is the regular systematic part that each of us is commanded to, to bring as participation in the church. The offering would be that sort of above and beyond, whether you give that to another organization, whether you give that to a special project in the church or in somebody else's church or another um, organization around the world, if you sponsor a child, if you want to help top up the general fund or something like that. This is the above and beyond your, uh, your regular systematic tithing that comes in. And that's kind of the key to it, is that it's, it's the addition to, um, to that regular part that we bring in. So just a final word on this. And I want to leave you with a bit of a challenge since this came up in one of the questions that we received, is I want you to consider, in light of how we understand tithes and offerings and what they all are, that they share in, in, in line this idea of, of worship and faith and support, as you, as you ponder sort of where you're at, what your level of contribution is, how do you feel about that? Is there something kind of convicting within you, or do you feel like you are honestly doing it as an act of worship, that you're honestly taking a step of faith, an act of faith, and joining in what's happening here at West Meadows? And I don't put this challenge before you because I want anything from you. Uh, I don't want that to be misconstrued, misunderstood at all, that we're, we're asking for money. We're, we're in a good financial spot as a church. Uh, we're financially healthy, so that's, that's not what this is about. This isn't about me wanting something from you. Uh, at the end of the day, really what this is about is me wanting something for you, not from you. You see, if, if you view your contribution to the church as, as the money that we need to keep the lights on, as the money we need to pay my salary, that's not really in keeping with it being an act of worship, faith, and support. And in some ways, you know, there's... God talks in the Old Testament, too, about if the offering's not given to the right heart, keep it. It's kind of what he says to, to Israel at times in their journey. However, if you are generously giving as an act of worship, as an act of faith, because you are excited with the work that is going on in this place and the plans that are ahead of us, if you are giving for those purposes, then that is fantastic, and that is awesome. And it also not only is pleasing to God, but also it allows you to tap into the blessings that he promised in Malachi chapter 3 when he said this. When he said, bring in the whole tithe to the storehouse. And then he said, test me in this. And see if I will not throw open the floodgates of heaven and pour out on you so much blessing that there will not be room enough for you to store it. Now that blessing doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to write a check and get a bigger check. That, that's, not, that's not what we're talking about here. See, the, the blessing may come in the form of, of, of 
there are resources that he may bless you with, make sure that things are provided, but there's also relationships, and there, there's growth in the spirit, and there, there's opportunity to use your gift. There's all sorts of different sorts of blessings that are monetary and, and resource-based. Uh, his presence in our lives and the humbling of a spirit are blessings that we can experience these sorts of things as well. And so tithes and offerings, for the first and foremost, are about worshiping God. It's about worshiping God. And at the end of the day, I want you to practice tithing regularly, systematically, and sacrificially. But not because I want something from you, but because ultimately I want something for you. That's good. Yeah, the, I think the thing that hits me the most is that Malachi part where God actually says uh, to test him. Mm-hmm. Um, you don't find that in Scripture. So other yeah, it's the only time we find that in Scripture right? is test him. And so the idea, see what God has with that. So that's good. Yeah, so look, uh, there's another good question that came in. I think this next one that you're going to field for us, it's one that I have myself in the past. I do some research into to uh, understand it, but I, I think it's a growing question that people uh, have on their minds when they come across some terms, and that is, is this. What is the emergent church? Have you ever heard of that term before, that emergent church? Yeah, so could you help us understand what that is? We've probably heard the term, but might not quite understand what it is, how does it fit? Yep. Yeah, it's often confusing. So you probably have heard the term not only emergent, you've probably also heard the term emerging church as well. And uh, it's, it can get really confusing when you talk about these kind of two items. So um, I'm going to define these terms for you this morning, and then we'll focus on emergent, um, and you'll see that reason in a second. So uh, John Piper describes the emerging church is the term used to describe a proper reaction that is taking place primarily by younger age believers against some either differences or negative things going on inside a church, but the reaction doesn't throw away church doctrine. It's a change to a method to reach people for the gospel. There's a change that happens that it's the way we go out to reach people. It's the way we, we try to um, share the good news. It's maybe a different way we do something. Where emergent is the same similar reaction and method, but it adds another component to it. It changes not just the methods, but it under ch- changes the understanding we have of church doctrine, of that truth or what we believe. It changes that. So we're going to focus on emergent today and really help you understand what that means. So it started in about the 1950s, but didn't really change much or happen until the 1990s. All of a sudden, the 1990s happened, some postmodern era starts to begin and uh, really catches on. And what it, the first reaction really to was this megachurch plastic church kind of method or model or whatever you want to call it. People were frustrated. They'd go to these large, huge churches that were impersonal. They couldn't, they didn't make any friends or they were hard to make relationships. It was just, you know, this huge thing. And they also were struggling with that it was plastic. And so what they meant by plastic was, I don't even know how to have a relationship or I see Jane at church every week and we say hi, but that's it. There's nothing under the surface. There's nothing deeper. How do I grow in my faith? The note here, the important point is that the emerging church stopped here. It, the emerging church part stopped and said, okay, let's look at that, let's figure that out, whatever. The emergent church took it a bit farther. In keeping with postmodern culture, they decided to change what doctrine meant along with the change of the method. So in an emergent church, you will not find a statement of faith. If you were to walk up to them and say, what is your statement of faith? They probably don't have one. They will probably redirect you on that question. 
They also don't really love absolute truth. Really, they would say, truth is kind of all relative, you know, that kind of a thing. So as I was researching this, the question popped into my head, if truth is relative and they want relationships, what do they really want? What are they about? So what they're really about is they want experience over and feelings over truth. So they want that experience. They don't want anyone to be alienated ever. They want uh, everyone to free of their own opinion, and they would define tolerance as love, unconditional grace, and warm fuzzies with the acceptance of the sinner, which we understand, but they also would accept the sin. It's okay that you live that lifestyle. It's okay that you, you know, want to be angry about something um, and not deal with those things. So... You were to attend an emergent church, you would probably find that it was about experience and not about Jesus. And there, it's just missing that doctrine component that we practice. The second thing they focus on is good works and social justice in the here and now. And so they want to know what they can do now on earth, like, what do we do? They love social issues like income inequality, the environment, good works, but it's all over the gospel. It is all instead or in front of um, the idea. And the way they do this partly too is that it's the here and now. So if I were to, uh, um, come up to one of them and say, hey, when I die, what happens? They would probably answer me, say, let's not focus on death right now. Let's talk about the here and now. And, uh, as one of their founders, Brian McLaren would say, for many Christians, their faith is primary about what happens to people after they die. That distracts them from seeking justice and living in a compassionate way. So that's kind of their mantra. But it was interesting, because if you go back to our first question I, I answered this morning to Paul and James, your salvation should produce those good works, right? Should produce that social justice, should produce those things. And really, for them, truth is relative. And the best way I can describe it is it's like nailing jello to a wall. Uh, I know there are YouTube videos that allow you to actually do it, but... <laughs> If you just tried to eat a, a regular piece of jello, it would slide down and make a mess on your wall, and you still would not have an answer. So uh, part of it is they say they have no formal movement. We're not a movement. Each church does what they want. So if, if say, for some reason we had an emergent church, which we wouldn't, but if we did, this version could be here, and then we plant another one on the south side, and that one might be a little different, and kind of they have flavors, they might call them. And another, uh, the, uh, the other founder, Tony Jones of the Emergent Church, says this way, and this is where it gets to that heart of the doctrine. This is our belief, that theology or doctrine changes. The message of the gospel changes. It's not just about the method. It's everything changes. But I think this is important for us to remember, too. What this is not about, it is not about style or method used. It is about substance. Okay, so I've experienced, uh, I've been in churches, I, there are churches here in town that uh, focus on, say, young adults and reaching them. And maybe you'll go in and there's lots of smoke and lights and all that kind of stuff, um, but they are preaching the word of God. They're not changing the doctrine, they're not changing these things. People are accepting Christ, people are getting baptized, there is this public profession the style and method may be different, but they still have the substance. So the emergent church problem is really about the substance. 
and we really celebrate that the gospel is being preached. And that's why it's not about uh, the style or uh, method. In Philippians, we see that. Paul says this, but what does it matter? The important thing is that in every way, whether from false motives or true, Christ is preached. And because of this, I rejoice. Where the emergent church is really that different thing. It's that problem. It's that compromise of watering down the gospel and the doctrine. They would say that Jesus is not the only way. One of the recent guys I read said, I don't think we've gotten the gospel right yet. So what does that mean to be saved for them? For them, it's fluid. But for us, we know. Acts 4.12 tells us, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The emergent church's problem is doctrine, not method or style. The things we know from Scripture are that God's word in first, or Second Timothy, all Scripture is God-breathed, useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training righteousness, so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped to do every good work. If they would follow the doctrine, they would see that good works are produced out of this. And we know we have absolute truth in First John 20, 21. I do not write you because you do not know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes through from the truth. The gospel should prompt us as believers to that social justice, to that good work, that compelling, as I talked about earlier, being compelled. The gospel is exclusive, and yes, they seem to have issue with this, but everyone has opportunity. This is why we send out missionaries. This is why we go out in our community. We want people to hear and experience but the absolute truth does come from the word of God. So I think that's just important as, we, as the emergent church kind of tries to stray a little bit. It's not about style or method. It's about the substance. And may we hold that as we hold it. West Meadows true. Yeah, sometimes people come up to me and they ask me about different churches. And what do you think of this one? What are they like? What are they about? Sometimes I know, sometimes I don't. And if I don't know, one of the first things I do is I go to the church's website and I look for a statement of faith. Uh, and based upon that statement of faith, uh, the things that a church will, will declare as the non-negotiables for themselves will tell you a lot about a church. Um, and so it's really important to look at because some churches may not have any non-negotiables because, well, to some degree, everything's negotiable. Yeah. Um, but a church that will declare its statement of faith, such as, uh, like for us, if you haven't read ours, you can go to our website at westmeadows.org and you can have a look at our statement of faith and you'll see our, our non-negotiables, these, these core doctrines that we, that we all hold to and attest to. And I think that's really important to look at because we can look at a lot of different churches and there's different styles that we may not relate to or understand, but that may not quite be the whole picture. Mm -hmm. there, there are churches like, like you referenced yep. to, I know one church in, in the province here who baptized about 300 young adults last year with a style that a lot of people here may not like. But when those young adults step forward in the waters of baptism, they profess Jesus Christ is the way, the only way, a personal relationship as Lord and Savior, and they are baptized in waters in uh, uh, waters of immersion baptism, yep. which we would all agree with, well, those yep. sorts of things. So there's core doctrine there, even though the, the presentation Might is a be bit different. different. Yep. So, um, so it's hard to look at those sorts of things. Yep. Fantastic. I think it's good. Um, the next question is interesting for us that Mark is going to tackle. I think we've all had it before, so uh, the idea of the topic of forgiveness. Mm -hmm. 
And uh, it says, uh, there we go, let's see, yep, the uh, Bible says, I have to forgive, but I'm not sure I can. Yeah, this is a question that comes up a lot when people come to see me for counseling or different conversations that I find myself in in the foyer at times with people. Uh, and, and I think it's partially a problem for two reasons. Number one, there's a lot of misunderstanding over what, what does forgiveness actually look like? What does it mean for me as a Christian to, to forgive somebody else? Because uh, there's no question that Jesus taught about forgiveness. There's no question he taught that we should be striving towards being gracious, being loving, and extending forgiveness in all, to all people in all situations. There's no question that that is the teaching that's there. And when forgiveness is done well, it has this incredible power to be healing within ourselves, within our relationships. It, it can be restorative to, to our hearts and to our emotions, to, to other people, and into our relationships. However, when forgiveness is done poorly, it can also do further damage. When forgiveness is not done appropriately, it can actually open up a person to further abuse that they've already encountered. Or it can put you in a position where you feel like people are just kind of walking all over you all the time because you just have this blanket need to go, okay, you wronged me, but I forgive you, I have to. If, if it's done incorrectly, you become sort of a doormat. And Jesus was definitely gracious he was unquestionably loving. He definitely taught, practiced, and preached forgiveness. But I think we would agree that Jesus was nobody's doormat. And so that's not the model of forgiveness that we want to be uh, teaching or that we want to be practicing ourselves. Now, the Bible has a lot to say about forgiveness. And I think it has a lot to say about it because it's, one, extremely important in all of our relationships. But secondly, because it doesn't come natural to us. When we're at a point where we've been wronged by somebody, especially if we've been seriously wronged by somebody else, words like mercy and grace and understanding don't naturally come to us in those moments. And I think that's part of the reason that there's so much teaching on this. And one of the most clear directions we find is from, from Paul when he wrote to the, uh, in Colossians chapter 3 where he simply said, uh, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now in this verse, we not only have a command to forgive because we have been forgiven, but there's another side to this we can look at as well where it's, it kind of suggests as well that the starting point of understanding forgiveness is that we are to forgive in the same manner, in the same way in which we've been forgiven. So how is it? How can we understand the means by which we've been forgiven? Well, the forgiveness that Paul's referring to here is the forgiveness that we have all received from God through Jesus Christ. And what can you learn from that? There's a couple of things, a couple of key points, principles we can learn from that. Number one, we have to understand that an offense did happen, that all of us have violated God's law. All of us have gone contrary to God's will, and this, this has created an offense between us and God. Romans uh, 3.23 talks about this, where it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But secondly, that sin, that offense, it does matter, because that sin caused harm to us, and it caused harm to our relationship with God. And that harm was essentially a separation between us and God. Uh, and, and this is something that doesn't just exist in the New Testament. It actually exists in the Old Testament as well, where Isaiah was telling the people that your sins have made a separation between you and God. So it did happen. It does matter. And thirdly, there are consequences. Because it matters, because a wrong has been committed, there is some sort of payment or restoration or restitution that is needed to, to repair that relationship. And in the case of our sin and, and our situation with God, again, in Romans chapter 6, it says, for the wages of sin are death. The consequences of our sin against God is death. However, a path to restoration was made possible through Jesus Christ. And if we finish that verse in Romans 6, 
It says the wages of sin are death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. So forgiveness is freely given. We see that very clearly in the gospel that forgiveness is freely given, but do not mistake freely given for cheap. Forgiveness is by no means cheap because our sin, it did happen. It does matter. It does have consequences. And the consequences in this case is Jesus Christ had to give his life as payment for our sin. Now, the end result is if we are willing to acknowledge the reality that we have wronged God and that we need to seek his forgiveness, the reality is if we were willing to do that, we will receive it. And it says this in 1 John 1, 9, that if we will confess our sins, he is faithful and he will forgive us of our sins. So this is the nature of, of the forgiveness we have received that Paul's talking about in Colossians chapter 3, that we are to forgive as we've been forgiven. This is how we've been forgiven, that all of us have sinned, it does matter, there are consequences, but there is also a path to forgiveness made available through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And that is what we refer to as the good news. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, you may have also heard it said, perhaps from a, a friend who, who wants to be helpful in some situations, you may have heard them said, well, what you need to do, what you need to reach as your goal is you simply need to forgive and forget. Please don't do that. <laughs> forgiving and forgetting is sometimes what we think we need to do because if I can just forget it ever happened, I'll be fine. And, and it's not devoid of truth, but it's not necessarily healthy. It's not necessarily a healthy type of forgiveness we want to practice. And, and good intending people who, who, who suggest this to us, I may even reference scripture such as uh, Psalm 103 verse 12 where it tells us that God, when God forgives us, he takes our sins and he throws them as far as the east is from the west, has he removed our transgressions from us? Now, this is truth. This is the truth of what happens when God forgives us, but I don't think the psalmist is saying God has a bad memory. I don't think he's saying that God has just chosen to forget it ever happened. Rather than God forgetting it took place, I think what's being identified here, what's being suggested here, is that when we seek forgiveness and God is good and faithful to forgive, that he separates us. We cease to be identified with. We cease to be associated with our sins. Literally, the way forgiveness is used in the New Testament, the literal understanding of that is payment is no longer demanded. So it's not that God just chooses to forget like he has a bad memory, he just throws it away. It's, it's more in line with this idea that, that we were guilty and, and payment was, de was demanded for the wrong we had committed, but because of God's forgiveness and because we sought and received God's forgiveness, he separated us from the need for that because the payment has been settled. You may have heard an example of this or an analogy of this where they're saying that the slate has been wiped clean. Well, what that's referring to is is back in, in the time when there weren't cash registers or, or the ability to electronically keep track of somebody's tab. They would literally have like a chalkboard slate where they would write your name and how much you owed them. And the amount that you owed them would go up and down based upon how much you had paid off and how much more you had borrowed. And there was this constant tally of how much you owed to that person, how much indebtedness you had to another person. And so this idea of the slate being wiped clean doesn't mean you never owed them something. It doesn't mean you never had a relationship with them prior to that that they just suddenly forgotten about. It means that the payment has been paid, that the account has been settled. And this is much more an understanding of forgiveness that is in keeping with what is taught in Scripture, with, with the teaching that Jesus shares with us. 
For example, in the Lord's Prayer, in Luke's, in Luke's wording of the Lord's Prayer, it says, and forgive us our sins as we forgive everyone who is indebted to us, is the word that's used in Luke. Likewise, when Jesus tells the parable of the immersible servant in Matthew 18, you can read that later at home, Matthew 18, verse 23, at the end of that parable, Jesus equates forgiveness with the cancellation of a debt. You see, it's about this indebtedness and the account being settled, us being separated from the need to settle our account, to being settled for us. Because think about the implications if God was able and willing to just simply forget that it ever happened. If it was a matter of forgetting, that would have serious implications upon our forgiveness that we receive through Jesus Christ. Because if, if God forgets that it ever happened, to a great degree, it ceases to matter. Because there's no memory, there's no recollection of it. If it never happened, it really doesn't matter in the present moment. If it doesn't matter, there aren't any longer any consequences. If there's no consequences, there's no need for us to have a Savior. Because God could just simply forget, and it's dealt with and done. But that's not what's taking place in forgiveness. What's taking place is this need to settle the account. And that's what Jesus did for us, is he settled the account. Likewise, when we need to forgive others... Let's not lose sight of the fact of these principles. Let's not lose sight of the fact that the abuse or the offense did happen. If you lose sight of it and practice forgiving and forgetting, that is where people open themselves up to cycles of abuse. Where a wrong is committed, forgiveness is sought, it's given without consequences, and it's given without any sense of it mattering, and guess what? It repeats itself. And this cycle repeats itself over and over again. Why? Because we adopt the mentality of it. Either it didn't happen, I'm just going to ignore and pretend it doesn't exist, or we adopt the idea of, well, it doesn't really matter because I feel better now and I got over it, or we adopt the attitude of there are no consequences. That opens us up to being further abused. That opens us up to an unhealthy form of forgiveness, relationally for ourselves, but also for those around us. And as we can see in the example of Jesus' forgiveness, it's not necessarily in keeping with the principles of how we were forgiven. Because a price did have to be paid. It did happen. It does matter. And there were consequences. However, there's also a path to forgiveness that we need to look at. So rather than forgive and forget, rather than looking at it that way, understand it more in the terms of, uh, of reaching a point where a demand for payment is no longer reached. Reaching a point where we can say, I have let go of the offense. I've wiped the slate clean. How do we reach a point of truly believing that and feeling that without losing these principles? Well, in full awareness that this is not easy, uh, if somebody cuts you off in traffic, you can probably get over that pretty quick, but there's much more serious offenses that people will carry with them for, for years and years, even as they're trying to deal with them, because some offenses are very, very difficult. So what do some steps look like to reaching a point where we can say to another person, I've wiped the slate clean. Well, number one, we want to recognize the benefits of forgiveness. We want to recognize that there are benefits to doing this. There's benefits to ourselves. There's benefits to other people. Maybe not even necessarily the offender, but maybe those people who live in the same community, in the same household as us. There's benefits to them if we can reach a point of forgiveness. And it's beneficial to all of our relationships. Because when we let go, when we reach a point where we can let go of the anger and resentment, it brings instead a calmness. It brings improved health, even physical health to people, and it can increase our happiness. It also gives us some keys to understanding and to receiving God's forgiveness in our own lives. If we start practicing this and live it out and walk in his footsteps, we get a deeper understanding of the forgiveness that we receive from him. But the second thing is this. We need to make a choice to enter into a season of forgiveness. 
Another big conception is that the day will come when you feel like forgiving somebody else. There's a chance that you may never feel ready to forgive somebody. Now, there are some times where you feel more ready to choose this than others, but there's a high likelihood you will need to reach a point where it's a conscious choice that you make. If we were to look at forgiveness in more detail in the New, in the New Testament, we'd also see that it's not so much about feelings as much as it is about obedience, is the teachings that surround it in there as well. Now, if a serious violation has happened to you, this will not be easy. This will not be a quick process, but it is one of the first important steps is to reach a point where I'm choosing to enter into the process. That doesn't mean it happens in a day. That means we start working on it on a particular day. Uh, next, pray. Pray for yourself. Pray for others. Pray for the, the situation. Um, this will be a gradual thing as well. The first prayer you pray may be pretty ugly. Um, don't worry about offending God. He already knows what you're thinking and feeling anyways. Verbalizing it is not going to shock him or surprise him. Uh, and you may have a very, very kind of ugly words that you pray. So if that's where you need to start, then start with that. Start praying for yourself, for the process. And in hopes that the day may come when you're able to pray for the offending party and reach a point where you can see them as God sees them, as a sinful, fallen person, and yet somebody who we don't fully understand, and yet God loves. Because God does love them, which is hard to understand at times, but it is the truth. And then next, acknowledge your progress. If this is a long road to forgiveness, uh, you may want to kind of, you know, check your progress along the way. It, whether and This shows up in other parts of our lives, too. If you're working on a big project, if you're fitness or going on a trip, it's, it's much easier to complete the full trip if you kind of chart your progress and go, hey, look how far we've come already, and understand that you are making progress. This may show up as you celebrate little victories, as you identify how much different your prayers are today versus how they were previously. Um, and then finally, be realistic. The end result may not be you and that other person becoming best friends. That may not be where you find up. You may not find yourself at a point where if it was in a marital relationship where you decide to get married again or come back together again, unfortunately, that may not be the reality from where you find yourself. But you can still find yourself at a point where whatever the offense is, there are consequences that need and implications that need to be put into place that still allow you to extend forgiveness. If there's somebody in your life who is constantly stealing money out of your purse, a, a point comes where there's consequences to that, where, you know, I'm going to hide my purse. You're not going to be allowed to freely go in there and get your car keys out of my purse. There's consequences to that because you have to put a stop to it. And you can forgive that person and still not give them access to your purse. That's one of the consequences of some of these things, but you can still truly extend forgiveness even in those situations. So uh, a couple steps to look at. Uh, I don't want to oversimplify or minimize how serious or difficult a process like this is, but there is a path. There is a path and there is a command for us to, uh, to head towards forgiveness. So um, why don't we close there? Okay. Luke, could you, could you pray for us and, sure. uh, about the forgiveness we've received and we need and want and uh, can extend to others? Yeah, feed by your heads with me. Lord, we just thank you... Uh, for who you are, Lord, we thank you for uh, the forgiveness that you've extended to us, that uh, yeah, while we are yet sinners, you still loved us, Lord, and uh, there is a pathway to salvation, and it's through you, and uh, your love as well, Lord, uh, extends to that. Pray for each one here as, uh, as they process maybe some forgiveness, and uh, if there's somebody they need to forgive, may they start that process today. If there's an ongoing process, may they just be encouraged by it as well. Um, 
And so, Lord, we just thank you that you allow us a path, but may we uh, also just know that uh, it takes time. And uh, may we also just seek you first in all these things. And ultimately, we thank you for your forgiveness of us. We pray this in Jesus' name.